on the Empire Podcast this week. Now you hear, now you see me, Jesse Eisenberg and Isla Fisher, and we delve into a field in England with a true gentleman in Reese Shearsmith. Plus, of course, all the news and reviews that are fit to pod in the only movie podcast that is really digging the latest work from Daniel Radcliffe, Stephen Fry and Matt Berry, to name but three. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. In case you're wondering, that little reference was to the new album from cricket pop maestros, The Duckworth Lewis Method, on which Messrs Radcliffe, Fry and Berry guest to great effect. Do check it out. It is available now in all good virtual record stores. And with the ashes just a week away, I'm joined as ever by three of my teammates padded up and ready to rock. First up is a lady with a stout defence with an admirable ability to deploy a straight bat in the face of overwhelming stupidity. It's H.L. O'Hara. I am going to see Daniel Radcliffe on stage on Friday, though. So well, there you nice. go. You can throw a cricket ball at him. Okay, great. That's in The Cripple of Inish Man, which is a Martin McDonough play. So oh, that, mm. that's going to be exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, look at you with your culture and your art. You always go to plays. Yeah, I'm cultured with a capital K, me. Uh, next up, we have a resident art house expert, a stylish craftsman who is inseparable from his bat, which he's named Le Quatre Sans Coup. It's P.E. Dissemblian. Hello, sir. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very good. Excellent. What does Daniel Radcliffe do on... The Duckworth Lewis, Lewis method. Second album, Sticky Wickets. He uh, he narrates a portion of a song called Third Man. Stephen Fry narrates a portion of a song called Judd's Paradox. Uh, Matt Berry narrates a portion of a song called Mystery Man. So uh, there's loads of uh, guest appearances on there. Are you getting royalties on this album? No, but I, I want to spread the word. <laughs> but um, cricket pop is back and it's here to stay. Is he? Of course, he's a cricket fan, isn't he? Because he's always he's at the fan. he's always at the Test match in the yes. Oval. And in fact, I'm seeing the Duckworth Lewis method at Lords on Monday, and I'm hoping. I'm guessing not, because he might have other commitments. But I'm hoping that uh, Mr. Diddy Ryan, Daniel Radcliffe, and uh, Stephen Fry might show up to narrate live in person. Well, they'll probably just press a button and they'll be there. I'll let you know next week. There you go. Right. Exciting. That's something to look forward to. That's something to live for. Uh, last but not least is our very own Kevin Peterson, a reference which is probably lost on him. Uh, he's a rampaging powerhouse who thinks the only way to use a cricket bat is for twatting zombies. It's JC Dyer. Hello. Hello. This is about basketball, isn't it? It is about basketball. Yeah. Let's take some questions from you guys now. Sorry about the cricket detour. At the Carl Jackson on Twitter asks, have you ever wanted to give a film no stars? Helen's shaking her head immediately. Yeah, yeah, a lot. When I used to be a reviews editor, I had to sometimes throw myself on certain grenades um, for the good of the, you know, the in, greater good. In top secret style. In everyone, top secret everyone style. Everyone else exploded. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and some of those were definitely no star films. Now, I think I've talked about three of them before. Soul Plane... Yu-Gi-Oh! Pyramid of Light that was the one with the infamous line even eternity doesn't last forever <laughs> and uh, and uh, an art film called Drawing Restraint 9 which um, honestly I could not have been more bored by but actually today I'd like to name and shame another couple of films okay. which made me furious beyond reckoning and those are Anonymous and Paul W.S. Anderson's The Three Musketeers oh uh, come on now you're Three, come on now. I can appreciate that they're... Neither you know, of those are no serious star films. This is politically no, motivated bashing on this Anonymous. This is politically motivated bashing on both their parts because they both commit intellectual vandalism on a scale beyond which I, you know, I cannot imagine. This the, doesn't this this raises an interesting point though. Your reasons here is, and this is one of those great reviewing pitfalls, isn't it? That yeah. At, at times, you want to be punitive yes. when you're reviewing something. I it's do. Not, you're and not, I, yeah, you're I not appraising the film for its artistic merit. You're mm. basically saying it has offended you on some level, and you want to punish the filmmakers. Yes, I do. I like Roland Emmerich. I really do. I've always been his defender. Um, and we, we talked to him quite recently, and he was lovely, uh, but anonymous. Which you can hear in September, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks to the vagaries of embargoes on weird release dates. And, and Three Musketeers, you know, it's one of the great adventure stories ever written. And they decide they need flying. Yes, but galleons. they made it better, Helen. Don't oh, you understand? I might throw up. 
Alexandra dumbass didn't have a, a, <laughs> the imagination to think of flying ships. If hey, if yeah. they'd been dragons in the Napoleonic Wars, no one would have complained. That's a different thing. That kind of works. This did not work. Yes, anyway, please make Tamara let's someone. move on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I felt that way about a number of films, which, which I mean... The scary movie films being an example, there's there's clearly an audience for these films because people go to see them, but they are hateful, hateful pollutions of the art form, mm. uh, and you want to punish people for making them. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I felt that way a little bit. I hate to say it about The Last Stand. Um, not because it was a bad film, because it's not a bad film, but I was so heartbroken at seeing the great Arnold Schwarzenegger doing that role in that film that I just yeah, I, it brought all the bile up and I hated it for it mm. but you didn't want to um, give it zero stars did I didn't you? want to give it zero stars no okay. uh, but but I did want to punish it somehow maybe a light spanking Phil do you want to give a film no stars it seems a bit it seems a bit mean really but I would have probably given Battleship no stars if possible Really? Oh, that mm. seems harsh. No, it doesn't. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know whether We as a Magazine would ever go that far. I mean, I've certainly wanted to do it. I mean, Project X is for me the worst movie of the last twenty years by a considerable distance. But yeah, I don't. We, I don't think we can give things no. Stars, no, we really. we can because yeah. that would essentially be make it a six star rating system. Yeah. Um, Again, there. But, are, but Soul Plane really didn't even deserve one. I'd like to just go on. Soul Plane and Project X had a fight. Who would win? Soul Plane is literally offensive to every race, creed, and colour. Just everybody. You've just described Project X. Okay. Ooh. Maybe these two should get together and cancel each other out. Maybe what we're saying in this is that it's that extra bit of personal animus. You really hated Project X. You really hated Anonymous. Mm. You're both political people. I respect that. That's <laughs> what that drives a, it over the edge. It's a you, diplomatic you, way of saying we're Northern Irish. You can't speak. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Maybe. No. But, you know, that's probably what drives it over the edge. Yeah, that little bit of extra kind of Possibly, gas in the tank and hatred. But sometimes people go into films with agendas and you you, you, know, you try your hardest as a mm. film journalist not to do that. It's sometimes yeah. very, very difficult. But I didn't go into Project Act expecting to hate it to the degree that I did. I hated it because it's repulsive and loathsome and, and just utterly vile. But yeah, I didn't. I didn't go with an agenda. No, but you came out with one. Pack. I came out with one. <laughs> I came out with yeah. I formed the uh, the anti Project X party. The most famous example of uh, of a critic giving no stars is Chris Tookie at the Daily Mail, who gives no stars in the form of a Tookie turkey. And uh, most famously, I think he gave a Tookie turkey to uh, Train Spotting, which he said was oh. you know disgusting and file. pretty much he had the same reaction to that as I did it to but isn't that that's the same thing isn't it you're not you're not appraising that film on its artistic merits because it clearly has many of them you, you're no, he's personally going offended by something it said and I do wonder whether Tookie plays a role I do wonder whether there's a certain persona that he projects because he's writing for the Daily Mail and something that, that seemed to encourage drug taking or but you're not doing your job whatever. as a film critic though if you bring your pre- personal prejudices and you yeah but he's writing for a particular audience isn't well he? yeah that's true so uh, next question is from at Luigi. great name if there's a film based in a book that you haven't read, will you try and read it before seeing the film? Helen has read every book that's ever been printed, <laughs> so this is redundant. Mm. I actually do often read stuff when it goes when I hear it's been optioned. Oh, really? Um, but I, if I've left it to a certain point, then I won't read it before seeing the film. Like War Horse, for, weirdly, I, I just I didn't go see and I didn't read once I heard Spielberg was making it because I wanted to see that clear. Mm. But yeah. something like, um, well, Hunger Games I'd already read, but... Okay, Mortal Instruments I'd already read. But there's a few like that that I've, that I've gone and sought out. We should say that you can read a book in approximately eight seconds. Therefore, it's not like a massive inconvenience for yeah, you to... She's like absorb. Johnny Five, basically. Yeah. Or, or like Kim Basinger in My Stepmother is an Alien, where she lays her arm in the book 
and absorbs it all in I'm seconds. not an alien. Where would you get that idea? Gosh, that's just crazy. No, but <laughs> it's a fair point, though. I mean, I, I do it. I did it. I really like the trailer for The Bourne Identity and therefore made the mistake of going <laughs> out and reading Robert, Robert Ludlum's The Bourne Identity. I tend to read things like um, that after I've seen the film. I couldn't, I couldn't wait in that case. But no, but invariably the book is generally, that's an exception, uh, better than the film. So mm. Mm. I, I read Watchmen before the film specifically so I could get angry about the squid <laughs> not featuring in the movie <laughs> really excellent yeah. you went furious you went over the agenda furious I read it a day before you are part of the squidest camp up. yeah exactly it was an outrage to squid everywhere no not especially because I what? tend to think it ruins it a little bit sometimes yeah. and also they're very different beasts aren't they there's been a couple of great books that I've enjoyed thoroughly Life of Pie and Cloud Atlas that have both been one really really outstanding and one very good I thought um, done justice to they stand alone so I, I wouldn't necessarily run out and want to read the book first it is true about Helen though you do download books it's amazing literally yes. and figuratively yeah. indeed uh, okay so moving on now uh, from the next question is from at Simon Young 76 how come zombies became sprinty in the last decade seems to have coincided with the rise of energy drinks <laughs> aren't humans zombies energy drinks really Look at it. Oh mm. wow, that's deep, man. But this is see the question is whether or not you lay this at the feet of Danny Boyle or Zack Snyder, because as Danny Boyle has been at pains to point out, they're infected; they're not zombies. Yeah. Mm. Um, and whether or not that's just him being pedantic, or whether or not it's the case, is open to debate. Zack Snyder, however, very very clearly decided he wanted sprinty zombies. Yeah. Well, he was clearly um, influenced by Danny Boyle. So yeah. You kind of have to lay it at the feet of Danny Boyle, but not really. Also, but people do misinterpret them. Maybe as he has zombies. the responsibility, but not the blame. Perhaps something like that. Well, you say blame. It's a different type of horror. The thing, and I'm yeah. sure Chris. He's will Oppenheimer. <laughs> the thing with zombie films is that sense of inevitability. It's yeah. impending dread. That's what yeah. makes them frightening. Whereas Dawn of the Dead the remake is basically aliens, so much so that he uses part of the alien score in it. It's it's scary things running at you, jumping out. You know, it's, it's a different type of horror. So is it still a zombie film? What was interesting to me was uh, I wasn't here when you guys were discussing World War Z, and I really really liked it. Um, surprisingly so, because mm. I'm a I'm a Romero purist. Um, and yeah, those zombies are not my zombies, they're not George Romero's zombies, but... They're not Max Brooks zombies. They're not Max Brooks zombies. Uh, but I thought they really, really worked. Even though, yeah, I think we talked about this in the show before, I don't like the idea of fast zombies. I no, don't think it works. No, I don't works. think... I actually ultimately don't think... But I think was, we need a different name a little bit, because I thought... I, I liked World War Z as a film. I thought it was a good summer action blockbuster. I don't think it has much to do with World War Z. And I feel like we could possibly just call them something else because there are, I mean, there is a, you know, there's a legitimate kind of form of horror in that kind of mm. pandemic, in that social breakdown, in that thing that ravenous beasts are suddenly, your friends and neighbours have become ravenous beasts and are out to kill you. That's a horrific idea and a, and a legitimate form of horror. But it's not the same as zombies. And zombies it is. It's the creeping dread. It's the inevitability of death that you ultimately cannot outrun forever. With 28 Days Later and indeed 28 Weeks Later, the horror of it was the pandemic. It was the... It was the, And they, it's only described in the first film that you see it much more in the second one. The idea that there's a crowd of packed people, someone gets infected, and the infection spreads yeah. through the crowd in minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But oh, yeah, it was, if fast zombies are infected or whatever, we would be absolutely screwed. Absolutely screwed with the slow, slow moving zombies. You have a chance at least of holding up somewhere and outlasting them. The uh, the thing of fast zombies as well, and I think Helen, you, you did something on this for the website, mm. is that uh, for me physiologically, it makes absolutely no sense no. because running that fast yep. constantly burns energy. 
burns energy, but also you overextend your tendons. Yeah. They would snap something, probably. I mean, so... So basically, exercise tears your muscles slightly and then, then they rebuild maybe slightly bigger if you're lucky. Hence DOMS, delayed onset muscle there you go. stress so syndrome. So if you're a zombie, <coughs> then your muscles the are tearing, one. but they're not repairing and you're not going to be able to move for very long, especially if you're sprinting. Um, and also, you know, just law of the conservation of energy. They're burning energy. They're not taking enough in because they can't properly digest. Mm. Also, the, the zombies in World War said don't eat humans because the idea is yeah. that, you know, they, once they bite someone, that person transforms and then they're no longer food. No, so exactly. where do they get the food from? That's also... I, yeah, I'm beginning to hate this film now. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> I really liked it. Just yeah. on a very basic level, I mean, I'm not really a zombie purist, but life has sped up. It's got faster. And I think the zombie... It sort of makes sense, really, doesn't it, that the zombies reflect that. You're saying bit. social commentary. Hmm. It's supposed to be social commentary, though, isn't it? I mean, it was social commentary when George Romero did it, and it's still sort of social commentary. I agree with Helen's point that, that that's mostly completely denuded from, from Max Brooks's mm. book for World War Z. And on a separate note, how good was World War Z in the end compared to how bad we thought it was going to be? I'm really glad about that, mm. yeah. weirdly. It was one of the summer movies I've enjoyed the most. So, well done to all concerned, because I know most of them almost died in the process. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I really, I really liked it. I really liked the uh, the third act as well because I thought it, it actually had a sense of genuine threat and dread and made it more intimate, which is so rare for a summer blockbuster to do. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure you guys have discussed this already in the podcast, so uh, let's move on swiftly. Uh, like a zombie, good one here from at Clone Star JC, who asks, I can't believe you've never had this one. What's the best opening line to a film? And he nominates the jerks. I was born a poor black child. Must be tough to beat. Hmm. That is a great line. Spoken, we should make clear, for anyone who hasn't seen it, by Steve Martin. Yes, who is neither who's poor, neither poor nor, nor black, nor child. Indeed. Um, I, I would say maybe, I mean, the opening sort of voiceover from something like Manhattan or Anchorman is pretty good. Um, Stand By Me, I was going, I was 12 going on 13 the first mm. time I saw a dead human being. Um, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. About What's the, that? The drugs taking hold just outside of Barstow. Isn't yeah, that right? Okay. Great line. Who's the slimy little twinkle-toe cocksucker that just signed his own death warrant? I love the beginning of Full Metal Jacket, obviously. The beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West is fantastic. Now, there aren't really any lines of dialogue for the first, like, 25 minutes, but when Bronson Harmonica yeah. and he faces the three gunmen and... Uh, I love the apocryphal story that that was meant to be Eli Wallach and Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef. Right, yeah, yeah. Did you know that story? That's right, yeah, yeah. I did know that. Looks like we're... Two, with one horse shy and he just says oh, nope you brought too too many exactly and guns them all down that's awesome I, li- I also like Bonacera's beginning to The Godfather that I believe in America mm. that whole thing's very good that's very good Wario was in The Godfather <laughs> I believe in America Wario <laughs> is that racist <laughs> probably I'm a Don Corleone I'm a Don the Win it's, it's just dreadful no it's dreadful what have we done we've just ruined the film um, Train Spotting's Choose Life that's quite good I also like um, it's, Has anyone seen Mall Rats? There's probably three people There must be three people out there Who've actually seen Mall Rats I've seen it um, But Jason Lee His first line in the film is uh, One time my cousin Walter Got a cat stuck up his ass, um, Which is one of the great lines Unless we forget The first line of Flatliners What is the first line of Flatliners? Today is a good day to die Which is great for many reasons Principally though uh, Because he's quoting uh, Worf in Star Trek Okay thanks for your questions uh, As ever do keep them coming We're on Twitter At Empire Magazine Is our name Hashtag it Empire Podcast If you want us to see them uh, We're on Facebook Empire Magazine And you can email us Those who do Infrequently Podcast At EmpireOnline.com Please no more spam Please Please no more spam Okay interview time now 
Rhys Shearsmith is, of course, one of the members of the brilliant League of Gentlemen, but has been ploughing his own furrow as a writer and actor for a while now. He pops up this week as a star of Ben Wheatley's brilliant, baffling and psychedelic A Field in England, and he came into the pod booth recently to talk with Nick Dissemlin and myself about that, the League, and an amazing line reading from Spaced. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the star of A Field in England, Mr. Rhys Shearsmith. Um, and also, sir, you are one of the mainstays of the Empire Awards. I am, aren't I? Yes. Yeah, yeah I've been fr- to everyone, I think. I was going to say you've been to more than, than I have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember um, being there at the very first one. We gave away Gwyneth Paltrow's award. In fact, I've still got it. She wants it. If you want it, Gwyneth, you come and get it around my house. Did Ben kind of come to you with this because he knew that you're, you're into creepy stuff and yeah. spooky stuff? I think so. I mean, I'm, I think he was a fan anyway of League of Gentlemen and Psychoville and, and my work anyway. I'd never, I went to see Down Terrace with him. Uh, well, Michael Smiley in, in, invited me to the first screening of that, and that was when I first met Ben. I thought he was amazing. And I didn't see him again until a meeting. He said, do you want to meet? I'll show you my film Kill List. So I went to see that, <laughs> came out broken and uh, with the Kill List stare. Yeah. I wish it was impossible to unsee that ending. I I just said in a timid voice, what have you done? Why have you done this to us? And, you know, it was like, I don't know. It was was early days. It was an early screening, so I think he wasn't prepared for that ending and what it would do to people, especially Mm. people that have children. So I was kind of horrified that he could could have thought of it even. And then I didn't really hear anything from him for about a year. And then um, we met again, and he, he, he kind of pitched the story of the field in England. And, and at that time, it was slightly different to how it eventually became. It was a bit more linear and a more clear cut as a story, almost like a twist ending type thing. But um, then the script arrived, and it was like, "Oh my God, what's this?" And I gather that they had been thinking of me for Whitehead, and it would have been written for me, which is a lovely thing. Sometimes scary because you think, "Well, you know, you're putting you literally putting your eggs in in the basket of this person can do this brilliantly. I can see them doing it, and they, I can hear just how they're going to do this, and that kind of sometimes is terrifying to deliver as the mm. actor. You think there's a lot of expectation on me now to completely inhabit and house and render and deliver this part just as you imagine because you've written it for me. And on that journey, there's a 10-minute sequence, yeah, which I kind of liken to 2001 Space Odyssey because it's just this insane yes, it is. I collage, of, said collage night, of kind yeah. of images and sounds. It becomes what? a whole kind of um, yeah experience. What was on the page for that? There wasn't really. It was, like, it was a bit of a Nick Rogue kind of Don't Look Now montage ending that wasn't there on the page. I mean, and then it's created afterward. I think it maybe said something about... It never really felt like, oh, and here's the moment, here's the 10-minute weird sequence. It wasn't in, that wasn't in the script, not in the same way. I think it was the point where I eventually do eat the mushrooms and I kind of empower and get the power of the field and turn the tables on O'Neill. That felt that was the start of it in the script, but there wasn't ever really, like, shot for shot, a million fast cuts between my head and, <laughs> and Michael Smiley's. Did the weather plan havoc, was it? Uh... It did, yeah. There was times when it was absolutely pouring down. Yeah. We were sodden through, and then there were, and it would clear up instantly. I mean, that was one of the startling things about um, the entire shoot, really, because being outside all day, it never really occurs to you, because you never really are. You look out the window, and it kind of looks the same. But if you really are outside, and you see the, how changeable the English weather is, oh, yeah. within minutes, every minute, so it's something's different again and again and again. And when you're filming it, trying to keep it in one thing, and that becomes a, an issue, you really are you know, you're attuned to how changeable is that's why we talk about the weather all the time Ben was assured and he assured us that it wouldn't matter he said and it was pouring down some scenes and the next scene was which with the same scene it dried up and it was sunny yeah I said Ben it's completely different he said be all right 
And uh, how how was um, the, the the process in this film as well? Because I was on uh, side series for a couple of days and got a little in, a little insight into Ben's working methods in that one. And uh, that was very fast paced, very improvisational. Yeah. I'm guessing the language and the dialogue here is very specific and didn't allow you guys to play around that much. Yeah, it didn't. And I think the initial thought was that we would try to do a version where we would do the the, the text as it was written and learn it and then we'd kind of do an improv version but it was just became very early on increasingly clear to us that you couldn't improvise that language not not as well as it was written clearly you've known Michael Smiley for a while yes what about the, uh, the other guys in the cast you know, like no I didn't know any of them yeah. I knew um, I knew Richard a little bit from some stage stuff I'd seen him do I didn't know Peter uh, he was brilliant in Tony, of course, and I loved that film, and I was quite frightened of meeting him because I thought he was so good, but he's totally different in real life. But he was really method, so method. I mean, oh, if, really? he, if he could have, he would have been shot with a pistol <laughs> and bled out. I mean, nearly did. He had ice brought to him on the field and put in his pants, and it was quite extraordinary to see the extremes he was going through. I mean, I think he's brilliant. I mean, he really was a revelation, but I mean, I was, it put me to shame, I thought. I'm just going to act those bits rather than actually happen to me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and Michael was, I've never worked with him properly, but I knew him, but he was quite a formidable uh, person to act with. I mean, I it was scary because the build-up to, to Michael being in it and O'Neill himself arriving in the story, is it was kind of interchangeable because he started a day after us. Okay. So we'd had a, week, a day and a half in the field before he comes into it. So there was the expectation of him arriving, and I think he, he felt... I mean, I was quite, quite scared because I knew that we were going to be at, at loggerhead, so he was going to be so horrible to me. And uh, that would just have to manifest itself in whatever way came out. But, you know, he's lovely, but it was, it was great to kind of have those big scenes with him. A lot of talking scenes and a lot of scenes that were done in one take as well. Oh, really? So it was quite a lot of okay. yeah, language, a lot of the walking, talking. We just... Um, we did them all in one take, and, and a lot of them is used, actually. Ben was... Uh, he's not cut into them. They are kind of the full one takes, which are which are great. But it's scary because you've got to be able to do it like a play. You're in Shaun of the Dead as well. Yes, very yeah, yeah. Quick very quick. Moment. And the other um, other Dylan Moran in the, yeah. the where they meet the other group going the other way. Whatever happened to him? That, that your character in Shaun? Do you think he made it? No, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. He tried to fight a battle some with an umbrella, and uh, they turned it round on him and pushed it through him. Oh man, yeah. you've been thinking about this. I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they ate him. Yeah, and you're you're also in space as one of my favourite kind of characters in space. Yes, Dexter. Oh, Dexter, yeah, the roboteer. And I, I'm going to try and play you what I think is one of the greatest line readings of all time. <laughs> oh yeah, I had a flutter. Was that you or was that Edgar or where where did no, that come from? No, just me. I mean, messing around. I just thought it came it came from um, you know the faux uh, realization of oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Oh yeah, I had a photo, and then by the twentieth take, it was just oh yeah, I had a photo. <laughs> so it just mutated. I, slowly it just mutated, into that. and I, yeah, and I was kind of playing Papalazzo at the time, and I mean our program, and <laughs> kind of just gobbledygook speak was kind of at the forefront of my. I mind. just always forget about that, and then I watch the episode, and and, and he arrive at that point. Yes, yeah. amazing. And Nick and Simon were really laughing, so I thought I just did it more. Do you watch any American comedy? Because it struck me that there's a new series of Arrested Development, which is which, yeah. which took the format, and it reminded me of your. I know, I know, I've not seen any Arrested Development. I mean, I think I'm sure I'd love it, but um, I heard that about the, the, because their new. I suddenly thought of that. I hadn't thought, really mentioned. Feel, you hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought um, it was yeah the similar uh, layout of the, of the each week. You get a different characters right. kind of story yeah, arc. Right. Yeah, and we, we just did that with Lee because we thought we were so terrified of. Um, palpably afraid of spoiling it and, and being um, fans of it ourselves and aware that 
the last thing we wanted to have leveled at us was it was repeating ourselves. So we thought a new way of looking at the stories and just kind of not having the sketches flitting around. Although, because then you you cripple everyone that likes that. You know, there's mm. something very appealing about every minute and a half getting something new to refresh your batteries. And then if you don't like the characters that you're spending most time with, then that's kind of that episode's essentially written off for you. So you have successfully creeped me out because I've... I've oh, good. Have you unfollowed okay. me? <laughs> I haven't I, have I know some people have said I used to follow you, but I can't, I can't follow you. It's too horrible. I can't look at those images at night. Where do you find these images? Because there's one in particular. There's an old lady know, sitting in a cafe is, and I you know, described her as uh, looking like a balloon with makeup on. She's <laughs> pretty spot on. Where, sure. where do you find this stuff? Well, just to scour the internet. It's all out there to, to, to be found. And I just, you know, occasionally someone will tweet me going, huh, you're like someone who's never been on the internet before. <laughs> I, it's all, everyone has seen it. And then I think, oh God, really? Has everyone just seen these things? And I'm just kind of a little old man presenting things that a mil- <laughs> so all the young people have seen a million times. And- I don't think this, no, uh, I, I don't yeah. think this old lady's trending. Yeah. Oh, she's uh, <laughs> too disturbing. Well, I, I, the, I, I use Twitter as well, like a repeat, you know, like a, a running joke. Sometimes I'll, I mean, I've, I've tweeted her many times, but and she'll be coming back again. It's just like I just imagine it's funny to, if you follow me to kind of see her return every now and again. There's this thing I think that's quite a funny are you, way. You're not a bit it. worried she might be on Twitter. I hope she come is. To, come to if visit she's you. on, please contact me and we want to get a photograph taken of you she's with me. She's behind you right now. You can pop her. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Someone said to me the, uh, the other day about that face. Oh yeah, uh, didn't realise it's just five faces in one. I was like, "What? <laughs> what do you mean? I, it's been—it's like a, a doctored thing, right? I mean, it clearly isn't. You think no? But no. I can't get involved with actually replying to people because they're all so fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> You've been tweeting pictures of uh, creatures and monsters from this terrifying-looking book, The Ghost Guide. Oh yeah, born. well I've rediscovered it. It's so great. I mean, I'm. It's funny. The older I get, the more I'm just trying to become the child I was. It's funny. <laughs> I'm just trying to find all these books that from my, that I remember so vividly from my childhood and that kind of began the the love of, all, of it all for me and um, yeah the Osborne book of ghosts is, it was a great companion guide that I had for many years and I was, I've been uh, and lots of people have this exact same memory when, when I've tweeted these pictures they're like oh god yeah that book we had that in our school library so it's a collective memory we all share it what's the monster you'd least like to wake up uh, with it sitting on your chest <laughs> <laughs> that one in that book there's apparently a ghost a Greek ghost that sits on and on your chest and suffocates you Really? Yeah. Greek? Yeah, so I he's think it was be... Greek. Pushing Tara Masalata into your mouth. <laughs> I think I may have met this ghost. <laughs> I think it's my first time experience. You've mentioned the League of Gentlemen a couple of times. Mm. Uh, you're working with Steve Pemberton again. Yes, we moment. are. Yeah, we're, we've written a kind of... Uh, it's like a bit of a Tales of the Unexpected type series. We've done so much a narrative thing with Psychoville that we thought we'd be nice to just do six different stories and um, with a beginning, middle, end each week. With a kind of uh, play for today armchair thriller link, um, in that they're, they're just little playlets. They're all very quite quite claustrophobic, and they, you just get these different stories each week. And the only link between them is that they're all behind number nines of different houses. So it's called Inside Number Nine, and each week you get to a, you go to a different number nine, whether it be a mansion, a dressing room, a flat, and you get these different stories each week with a really great cast that have all been all said yes to our scripts which is lovely and is nine the uh, the scariest number then well the night we arrived at nine literally right like, <laughs> i remember one meeting in our office me and steve what we're going to call it then we had decided that we would in, inside number one no two no three no four <laughs> it went on like this through every number <laughs> and i don't know why but we arrived at nine you just got bored at that point yeah yeah 52 <laughs> no i think i don't know it was, i don't know why nine but we arrived at nine 
and it's, we were sure of it. It's got franchise potential, though, doesn't it? Inside number 10, next, 11. Yes, you can well, go, we any, had you can that, go anywhere we, with this. Of course, yeah. And we did think, oh, God, we've had struggled with the title of this programme. We just wanted it called Number 9. And right. the BBC, in their wisdom, said, oh, but then you don't know what it's about. At least inside, you get the idea that it's inside. I said, well, yeah, if you still don't know what it's about, just put it inside. <laughs> if you don't know what it's about, you don't know what it's about. Put an inside on the front of number nine. It doesn't tell you, oh, it's about going into different number nines. But you get the word inside. <laughs> you know it'll be warm. Yeah. Warm. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Reese Smith, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. Movie news time now. Hooray! What have you got? I have the news that Steven Spielberg is planning a new adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath, the John Steinbeck novel, which is, of course, an acknowledged 20th century classic. The last big adaptation, certainly there may have been a couple on TV since, was the Henry Fonda John Ford one in 1940. So it has been a very long time. And Spielberg is not planning to direct this, but he is planning to produce it through DreamWorks. And uh, it would it would seem to be quite timely. It's all about the the Depression. It's about a family of farmers thrown off their land in Oklahoma who's, who head west in the hope of finding something better and, and things don't get easier, basically. Um, and sadly, it feels all too relevant nowadays. So it's also the 75th anniversary of the book. Um, and apparently there was a lot of interest in this one. When, when the rights came up um, with the 75th anniversary looming, um, Spielberg was just one of the people chasing it along with Robert Redford and the like. So we'll have were to see. Were they literally chasing it? They were literally, they had to run, which, I mean, you know, you know, I'm sure they're very fit men, but honestly, they're getting on a bit and it seems a bit harsh, but that's what that's what happened. I would put my money on Redford in that scenario. Well, you would have thought, and yet, here we are. And yet, here we are. Perhaps he was still <laughs> on his boat out at sea. Fast-moving directors. Fast-moving. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when directors used to be slow uh, and used to be able to outrun them easily? A sense of impending dread. Absolutely. So, that's it. Thanks, Ellen. Well, is Spielberg then not... What's he doing so many things? Why can't he just make Robopocalypse? Oh, who wants Robopocalypse? I've written a feature about it. I need him to make it. <laughs> so you can run it. <laughs> exactly. Um, you're right, who wants Robopocalypse? No, we, want, we, want to, we want him to get together with George Lucas and, and finally make that fourth Indiana Jones film we've been waiting for for years. Out. I, I, and finally... My you new know, story. Bring back to the screen and, and, and answer all our prayers. Bridesmaids 2. Yes. It's not happening. Oh. He, she's not doing it. She was interviewed by, oh, I think, Harper's Bazaar magazine. And she was pretty unequivocal that when they made the first film, they were never going to make another one. And without her and co-writer Annie Mumolo, mm-hmm. can't happen, really. It can happen, though, because Universal could obviously take the franchise on. It made just under $300 million at the but box can office. They, though? I mean, sometimes, sometimes the rights are with the creators. So In this they case, they have to get Kristen Wiig's approval. You know, for she, example, Eli Roth was kind of stiffed on Hostel and Cabin Fever. That's just an example that's popped into my head, so that's why there's Cabin Fever sequels in Hostel 3. He didn't want to make those, but he didn't have the rights, so away they went. Uh, Ghostbusters 3, without Dan Aykroyd's approval, I'm not so sure they can, otherwise we would have had one, wouldn't we? Hmm. Good question, but that would have been negotiated a long time ago. In this day and age, you'd imagine that they'd want the intellectual property to any particular franchise. Helen, as our legal expert, I'm going to bring you in. In this one, you have absolutely no knowledge of the cases mm, in, in, none, <laughs> in what we're talking about. So uh, let's, let's hear what you've got to say. Well, it would depend on the terms of the contract. Thanks, Helen. Uh, so are we, <laughs> How much is that going to cost us? Yeah. But we're relieved about this, aren't we, in a way? Because you don't want to uh, you know, diminish... Not that the original, I don't think the original is a classic by any stretch of the imagination, but um, you don't want to diminish the impact of the original, do you, by churning out a shonky sequel no absolutely I mean you can already see the ripples from Bridesmaids I mean the heat's coming out you know Melissa McCarthy's on fire the whole the whole idea of and it's so patronising but this was a four quadrant movie blokes went to see it as well as women it just kind of appealed to everybody but it was a female comedy and it did 
fantastically. So it's already had a big impact. Do we need a sequel? Where would the sequel go anyway? I mean, I just it doesn't really doesn't really add up from the first film. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's a big blow particularly. Cool. Although fact, we like the characters. Good on Kristen Wiig for sticking to her guns in that one, I say. Yeah, and she said, you know, I could have made a mozza if I'd made this film, but that's not really what I'm about or what I want to do. So fair play to her. Indeed. Score one for artistic integrity. Exactly. Jimbo. Um, uh, be honest, it's been quite a disappointing week news-wise. Nothing been particularly exciting, so I'm going to talk about Lego. Um, every, everyone here has seen the Lego movie trailer? Mm-hmm. Yes. Excellent, we're getting another one. Um, does anyone know the Ninjago stuff? Ninjago, Ninja Lego. Ninjago. Oh, sorry if I mispronounced it. Ninjago. Ninjago. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that. Uh, they're doing a Ninjago film. Um, the, the the Hagman brothers or the guys who wrote the, the Lego movie are, are working on it um, and it is about the little little ninja Lego people masters of wait for it spinjitsu hmm. is it going to be like Rashomon it could be it could be, be exactly like that but it will star Kai the red ninja of fire um, who is one of the, the Ninjago characters. so it can't be in black and white then because otherwise you wouldn't know which one the red ninja is <laughs> so, sorry, <laughs> this is slightly darker grey ninja hang on is this going to be in the Lego movie or is this a different no, movie no this is a separate movie entirely separate movie uh, All right. which has been essentially greenlit. Is this going to be serious in tone, or is it going to be like the Lego movie, a bit of a pistol? I would imagine it's going to be ninja in tone. Okay. I mean, it's going to be. It's going to have that sort of... It, it can't exactly be that serious. It's quite hard to take them seriously. They are small plastic block men. It's sort of but, three ninjas for the Lego movie generation, yeah. if you will, Chris. Or possibly surf ninjas, if we're really <laughs> lucky. Yeah. Did you know that uh, those films are... The titles are grammatically incorrect. The plural of ninja is ninja. It's like sheep. Oh, sheep. Well, so let's turn my whole so life. Three, ninja. three ninjas. You got it wrong, mate. What's a collective noun for a group of ninj- ninjai? A shuriken. An arse kickery. An arse kickery. That's even better. Um, no, but the, the thing, I don't, I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and possibly get stoned to death. I just don't get the whole Lego thing. Who cares? Mm. Like, they've brought out approximately a thousand video games in the last ten years. There's been Lego Lord of the Rings, there's Lego Marvel, there's Lego Star Wars, Lego this. Surely it just makes a Lord of the Rings game look a bit rubbish and blocky and people chase around bricks. Well, evidently, James, there's quite a lot of people that care. Yeah, well, clearly, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm very much on the outside here. I just don't get it. I mean, I liked Lego as a child, but I don't see the... I was left a little cold by the trailer for the Lego movie. Really? I thought, it was, I thought it looked fantastic. Yeah. There's not, been a, not feeling it. I think the reason that why the news isn't that great this week is, and I just remembered this, is because it's July 4th. It's July 4th as we're recording this right now. So, um, happy Independence Day. The day we day. take back our independence. The day we take back our independence. Uh, so, happy Bill Pullman Day to everybody out there. Uh, if you, Whether you're American or not. Yeah. yeah. Funny enough, I was on the set of Cuban Fury last year on July 4th, and uh, they brought out, Rashida Jones was there, and she was obviously separated from her home country indeed and uh, so they stopped filming and they brought out they had they played the American National Anthem and they had little flags and they brought out American cupcakes uh, so they you know she could enjoy it and feel a little part of her home homeland uh, let's move on to the next interview Now You See Me is a fun heist thriller about four magicians who decide to use their skills to rob banks or do they it stars Jesse Eisenberg Isla Fisher Mark Ruffalo Michael Caine Morgan Freeman and Woody Harrelson and we were delighted when the first two as Eisenberg and Fisher in case you weren't keeping score popped in to have a good old natter with Helen and Ali Plum now you don't hear them, now you do. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, and we are joined today by Isla Fisher and Jesse Eisenberg to talk about Now You See Me. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having us. There's a bit of a problem with this movie, which is that it's like a magic trick in that we can't really talk very much about anything. Yeah, exactly. Like, while you're watching a magic show, you're trying to figure it out, you're piecing it together, and of course at the end you realise it was something totally different and more interesting than you expected, and that's kind of what happens in the movie. You're watching it, you're piecing together the plot, 
And then at the end, you realize it's something far more obvious and more interesting than you expected. And it's a nightmare to promote, I'm sure. Well, like, there's all these other cool things about the movie, like our characters um, are like the greatest magicians in the world and we rob banks with our magic. So it's like, that's a really interesting part of it. But really, what you're watching during the movie is this kind of cat and mouse chase where the FBI is tracking us, trying to piece it together. So did you have to do, I mean, I'm sorry, you've had this, I'm sure, about a million times already, but, you know, how much did you have to learn and how much could you just wave your arms and trust them to add it in post? Actually, that is the millionth, and Uh, you get a prize. (laughs) No, we had to, like, do as much as possible because the director wanted the magic to be, like, real, Mm. not computers, because you can tell the difference, or if you can't tell the difference, it has some, I don't know, it has some better effect if it's authentic. So we had to learn as much as possible. Like Isla in the first scene of the movie, she is in a tank of water and chained to the bottom of the tank, and then piranhas are dumped in, and they actually brought real piranhas to the set, which actually turned out to be too small, so they actually had to make it out of computer. My agents paid for them. An Um, (laughs) ex-boyfriend. But, um, yeah, so Isla actually did that. She was, like, actually, you know, chained to, you know, there was escape routes and everything. I had to practice holding my breath for, you know, months leading up to it. So, yeah, we really gave it our best go, and the stuff we couldn't do or that that didn't work out that great, they helped us out. But um, everything you see in the movie, all the illusions, if they're not, you know, they're not around now, they're at least being developed and will be around in the near future. Like bank robbery. Yes. It's, yeah. it's on its way. Such a modern concept that hmm. we can't even grasp it. What yeah. I love about that is that you brought the piranhas in, they were ready to roll, and then on the day you go, these are too small. Yes, yeah. they're not dangerous enough. We think in. our actress may survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is not what we'd hoped. Amy Adams, hold a beat. We'll call you in in a second. <laughs> Once we've had her in munched. Yeah, they had like they brought like a tank of piranhas in. They planned months in advance from Brazil, and then the piranhas were like too small, so they called Brazil and they said, "What should we do?" And Brazil said, "Oh, just feed them." Yeah, and they're so tadpoles. The, so they were saying like, "How big could they get from feeding them?" In one and, hour. Yeah, and so they did not get any bigger. So they that was like one of the times they had to use like a computer effect, mm. but otherwise all of the things were kind of practically done. I like that. Have this phone number for Brazil. I'm just going to call Brazil. Yeah, yeah. Your piranhas are rubbish. Yeah. It's number six on the phone. <laughs> Yeah, if you're calling in America, if you're calling from England, it's seven. <laughs> now, we're here in a podcast, so my question for you, which may or may not go down well, is what is the best magic trick that you could possibly do that works on audio? <laughs> you could shuffle through a deck of cards. It just sounds like... That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> and I could oh, magic like... out a dove from here. Are you ready? Wow. Go. Qua, 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 qua. It's not it, that a French word? It's, 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 it's gone horribly wrong in here. I realised it was a crow I meant to say, but I have a little jet lagged. Well, you're both bird experts. You're Rise of the Guardians. We'll fix it in Feathered CGI. character, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rio. Yeah. There are yeah. a lot of parallels between our lives. A lot of parallels. Yeah. I'm just working towards being, you know, a playwright instead of writing bad emails. Well, yeah, that's, that's where all the best people start. They start with a bad email and they work yeah. up to... <laughs> Arthur Listen, Miller. They say you can't write any good emails until you've written all the bad ones. So <laughs> until there. all your emails get rejected. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then exactly. the last email. Yeah. And we're, then, they, then they find your bad email and think they're great. <laughs> just because you've had one success. And when you die... Then they respond. <laughs> now, of course, Jesse, you've worked with Woody before. Mm-hmm. Was it enjoyable to be back with him? Because I felt like he had a lot of fun. You two had a lot of fun on camera just kind of playing these almost absurd people that you that, that you that can't be real. Wait, which? In this? In this, yeah. The yeah, characters. we play like these competitive, you know, magicians who feel like threatened by each other's successes. And it's funny. He's a really funny guy. But beyond funny, he's like a very hardworking guy. Like when there's a joke mm-hmm. in the script, he'll come to set having written a dozen other alternative jokes. And 
try all of them, really. Yeah, and if you write a joke and he likes it, he'll take it too, which is really something to admire. <laughs> yeah, he's really totally good at delivering joking. jokes. He's just good at delivering jokes wherever yeah. they come from. <laughs> yeah, he's really, like, he's a hardworking guy. He, and he's like, just so funny. Woody really is funny. just one of these people that he just lights up a room. Everybody loves him. He's just got some special, mm. you know, quality. Really yeah, he's just so sweet. Yeah, he plays yeah. like a, a hypnotist in the movie and it's not far from his personality, which is like very persuasive. Yeah, he could persuade you to do anything. Like in the middle of the night, call you up and say, we're going to the zoo, man. I'm like, oh, oh, oh no. So then we like go to the zoo in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and he's just like persuasive. And then when he's hypnotizing you, it's like you can't tell if it's just because he's kind of charming and persuasive or because he knows the secrets of hypnotism. Now, you must be aware, Isla, that a lot of people have been watching you in Arrested Development in just binges. They just sit down and yeah. watch like 13 on the go. Yeah. And how does it how does it feel? Have you been having people talk to you about it like in the street when they see you, do they go, I can't believe you did that to Michael and this, that and the other? Yeah, well, I think that's what's really weird about, um, about this month is that I came out in this very watched movie, The Great Gatsby, and then I came out th- with this movie, but the only thing anybody has talked to me about is Arrested Development. So it's testament to the fan base and how... Uh, incredibly passionate people are about the Bluth family. Gatsby, I suppose. They know what's happening. I mean, Yeah, they've read the book. Why make a movie? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what happens. That's a really yeah. good point. Literally, <laughs> you just have to read the last page of that book. Speaking of, of books that just don't need to be made into movies, yeah. uh, The Double. Finally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Me, please. Oh, no, um, I mean, like, finally, they shouldn't have made it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You've got Michael Caine as a producer, I noticed, which right. is kind of a weird connection here because obviously yeah. he's in uh, Now You See Me. But you've got Rich Iwadi, yeah. and you're playing... This is going to come out wrong with yourself. Yeah. And then in the movie. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, I play, it's like based on the Dostoevsky novella. It takes place in this kind of paranoid dystopian world. And I play this like meek businessman who no one remembers. And if they do remember him, they don't like him for no reason. He's just sweet and good natured, but no one likes him. And then um, he shows up to work. He works at this awful kind of, you know, big bureaucratic like Orwellian pl- office and um, his doppelganger shows up and everybody loves the doppelganger. He's a shallow idiot, but everybody f- loves him for some reason and thinks he's attractive and funny and he'll tell the same joke that I tell, but um, everybody laughs when he tells it. It's really funny and then he like he starts to overtake my life. Well, I play both characters, so like I start to overtake the first guy's life. Yeah, and then like of course in the doppelganger myth you have to kill your mm. doppelganger so it turns kind of like dark. Uh, but uh, it's really funny. And Richard Ayuwadi is a very like, funny guy and very creative. And he created this entire world, like this entire dystopian universe. Every set was built. It was really amazing. And he's hysterical. With working like that, how does it work with the you and you? Yeah, you film like, um, if I'm in the same shot, then you film one and then they have a camera on a computer so that it, um, if the camera's moving, the computer records the movement so it does the exact same movement. And then you could watch it back to make sure I didn't step you know, over the other me. And then if it's intercut... I had, like, somebody doing the lines, this guy, Andrew, who was, like, um, an actor who would do the lines, you know, and that was really helpful as well. And I was curious whether you'd personally come up with a term for referring to the untitled Elmore Leonard project. I've been calling it The Switch um, because that's the name of the book, uh, but I've been told off because apparently there's another Jennifer Aniston movie called The Switch. So oh, she's I'm, in the other one? Yeah. Oh, God. I'm just not going to mention. Why don't they just but, call it The Switch 2? Yeah, because <laughs> Bateman's not in this one. <laughs> Also, your characters here have got great names. How were you approached with this? 
uh, frankly, when my agent told me about the movie, I thought it was terrible because I don't get sent movies like this. And whenever mm. I do get sent movies like this, they're bad. And then I finally cracked it open and it was fantastic. Like from the first page, you think, oh my God, this is fantastic. Like the surprises in the movie are actually surprising mm. and the twists are. But I mean, even more than that, the characters are really good. Like it seemed like the kind of movie that would uh, support a really good cast because all the characters are really interesting. And they asked me to play a really cool character, this guy who's like, a great magician who thinks he's the best in the world at magic and has kind of developed the attitude of somebody who thinks they're really great at something. And it was a good opportunity for me to play a character that's like confident on stage because I normally feel a lot of stage fright when I mm-hmm. perform. Uh, so this kind of tricked me into thinking that I'm comfortable on stage. <laughs> I mean, those arena scenes, did they have a sort of the several, first few rows kind of packed full of people? Mm. And they actually have these amazing realistic looking dummies that are just essentially a torso with a very human face. I mean, my kids were like, there is people. I'm like, no, they're not people. I mean, they're so really brilliantly done. And then they pepper those, kind of every four of those dummies is a regular person. And so the movement... Right, Right. so yeah, so it looks like people are moving. Yeah. Um, I got involved in the movie because Bobby Cohen, the producer on this movie, produced Definitely Maybe, which is another movie I'd done. So I had a relationship with him that was already very cuddly. It's a good reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Were you ever in Vegas? Because I wasn't sure from yeah, the movie. Yeah, we filmed the movie in Las Vegas. In the oh, first really? show okay. in the movie, our characters rob a bank in Paris from a mm-hmm. stage in Las Vegas. And like, it's really interesting because it seems like this uh, it's this impossible thing that's for a movie. But actually, like Morgan Freeman plays this magic debunker who reveals to the police how we perform this trick and you realize not only is it like possible but it's like obvious in some ways mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah also got to go to paris yeah we yeah. got to go to paris yeah, the director is fun. from paris the scenes we shot in paris are so quick and not really paris centric they're mm. like running up a flight of stairs we could have shot them anywhere we could have shot them anywhere but the director is french and you know wanted you know when you're like i have the same feeling like when i do a movie that takes place in new york and it's not filming in new york you feel frustrated because you know New York so well and you could tell it's inauthentic. And I think that's how he felt with this. It's always Vancouver, isn't it? New York. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uncanny. Movies out this week, or it will be yes, when we... movies at July 3rd. Put this out. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, everybody go see it. Thank, Thank you. Thanks so much. You. Lovely Jesse, lovely Isla there. They were great fun, actually. Yeah? yeah. Despite being massively, massively exhausted and jet-lagged. Okay, time for reviews now. Do you have money burning a hole in your pockets? Lucky you. And you want to see a movie this week? Where do you go? Where would you go? Sometimes you go to the cinema, right? But with a field in England, you don't have to go to the cinema. And a first for a movie in the UK, it's available in cinemas, DVD, Blu-ray, it's streaming. It's also going to be on Film 4 on TV this very weekend. But whichever format you watch it in, is it worth your time? Has Ben Wheatley continued his astonishing streak that began with Down Terrace and continued through Kill List and last September's Sightseers? Yes, he has. He really has. It's a very different beast from Sightseers, which obviously we enjoy because of its macabre black humour. Yeah. This doesn't have quite that streak of of uh, almost sort of bleak slapstick. This is yeah. this is a more sort of hallucinogenic, lysergic being. This is black the, and white shot, stark photography, yeah. set in the aftermath of a civil war battle, a Brit- an English civil war battle, not that American kind. And uh, it, it involves three soldiers and a scholar, the scholar played by Rishi Smith, as, mm-hmm. as we discussed and uh, they encounter mysterious Irish alchemist played by Kill List's Michael Smiley and uh, they join him in a, in, a, in a sort of treasure hunt yeah but an unusual treasure hunt uh, yeah should we say and not all of them are uh, entirely there by no. their own choice um, yeah I thought this film was fantastic uh, I think 
you know, it's it's dark, it's menacing, it's it's really really scary and unnerving. It really really unsettling gets in your head. Nick, who's not here compared to uh, two thousand one, a space odyssey. It goes incredibly psychedelic at the end, and uh, uh, but it is it's a fantastic fantastic achievement. And I don't think it's for everybody. I'll be honest, it's a very uncommercial movie. Um, it's very bleak and harsh, but it's shot brilliantly. Black and white photography by uh, Laurie Rose is great. And the performances are all fantastic. Uh, it's wonderful to see Reese Shearsmith get a, a shot at a really, really meaty role in this one. Um, it's got that lovely, mordant streak of Ben Wheatley humour dotted all the way through it. Uh, the interplay between the other actors, uh, from Richard Glover to Peter Ferdinando and Ryan Pope, is fantastic. They're just really, really good together. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I recommend people see it in the cinema, but if they can catch it wherever they can... It's a triumph because this is a this is a, a, a Ben Wheatley's one of the most original voices in British cinema for years, and uh, I think this is his most original film. Maybe not entirely his most satisfying. I still think I still have a soft spot for Down Terrace as his best film, but uh, yeah, you should definitely definitely check this one out. But prepare uh, for a weird experience. Yeah, yeah, a lot of weirdness. It'll be interesting to see how the how the release plays out as well. The multi-platform release. I'm sure a lot of people in Hollywood will be watching just as a case study because I don't think this has really been tried before. It has been tried before, but um, no, I mean, Steven Soderbergh's Bubble was released in much the same way uh, in the States, but uh, I don't think it was on TV. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it goes down. So we gave that four stars. A Field in England, which continues Ben Wheatley's streak, and then some. Okay, so next up we have the aforementioned Now You See Me. Thoughts on this one, people? Yeah, this is, uh, this is uh, Louis Leterrier's Magic Come Heist film, which stars essentially Jesse Eisenberg and Isla Fisher and uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, Franco the Younger uh, as a, a troop of, uh, of magicians, rather sexistly called the Four Horsemen. Um, and as part of their what act... What else are they going to be called? The Four Horse People. <laughs> that might be f- confusing. People might think they're horses' heads. The yeah. And it's not the Four Horse People of the Apocalypse. Yeah, but they were all like dudes and everything. Because it was, it was death, fire, fear, and mortis. No. The four, four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse. Death, plague, war, and pestilence. Yes, that was a Judge Dredd oh, reference. I see. Okay. Yes, so the point being that they're, they're a magic act, they're a Vegas magic act, and as part of their big act, they rob a bank in France, uh, which brings the FBI into the picture with uh, Mark Ruffalo heading them up uh, to try and bring these uh, sort of sleight of hand ne'er do wells down. I mean, it's, um, it's one of these films where, obviously, being a magic film, it, it's about. There's a line in it where Jesse Eisenberg says the secret of magic is to be the smartest guy in the room. And this film very much thinks it is. The argument here is that it might be a little bit mistaken. It has great showmanship, you know, as all great magic acts do. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of dry ice, there's lots of doves and fireworks and things. <laughs> I'm extending this metaphor. There's lots um, of dry ice. Yes, there's an awful lot of dry ice. <laughs> you know, that's what you look for in a film, is it? <laughs> yes, that is basically it. Um, it has a lot of showmanship. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I think the problem is, is that it, where it falls down is on the prestige, if you will. Uh, the 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 final sort of element of the trick is perhaps not as substantial as we would have liked it to be. I, you can't really talk too much about the end without giving away the the, the secrets. Yeah, which I wish this would film, like, in a way, would almost yeah, were almost big enough to warrant a spoiler special because there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, once the uh, the big twist. But it, it's not. This isn't a film. I think where the prestige is the be all and end all. I think there's a lot of fun to be had on the yeah. journey. It is a very enjoyable film. There is lots of stuff going on. Everyone's really likable. Um, you know, it, it, they're an interesting 
act. I mean, there's the four of them. There's uh, Isla Fisher, who's the escape artist, mm-hmm. whose skills are not really used a lot. Um, uh, Franco's the pickpocket. Je- uh, Jesse Eisenberg is the sort of card uh, card trick master. And Woody Harrelson is the mentalist in, in many ways. <laughs> and, and it's nicely put together. Uh, yep. Some of the elements are explained very well. I mean, Morgan Freeman exists in part as a narrative device. He's a, he's a professional uh, magician debunker yeah. who spoils other magicians' tricks by giving away the secrets. So all the way through... The way they've got around explaining how it all works is he basically tells you. Yeah, and it's, um, it's quite fun to kind of contrast him with Mark Ruffalo, who's just getting more and more frustrated <laughs> yeah. having to deal with these people the whole way through. You think he's going to Hulk out at any moment, to be honest. Yeah, he's he's absolutely spitting venom. There are veins bulging out of his head through half of this film. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. The interrogation scene with Eisenberg is, is one of my favourites in there where he throws the handcuffs off and onto him. It's very nice. There's also a great scene uh, about halfway through where Ruffalo tries to arrest Dave Franco and they have a, a cracking fight yeah. in an apartment where Franco's using loads of magic tricks to wriggle out of the clutches of Ruffalo and another FBI agent, which is probably worth the price of admission alone. It's one of those... One of those it's cla- really, that, really good. It, it, you know, I'm not saying this film is a classic scene in an Empire sense, but that is a great scene of this year. Yeah. Just watching him do that where he disappears and then he turns up and then he's throwing playing cards like Gambit from X-Men. Mm. Uh, it, it's very, very well put together. Also, I thought, you know, the movie loses focus slightly. Um, it starts off with the four horsemen and they're fun characters and you want to spend time with them. But then mm. for reasons that will become clear as the plot rockets along it kind of takes a step back from them mm. in a way and you're in, you, you were right a lot of the stuff with Four Horsemen doesn't go anywhere the Isla Fisher character doesn't ever really use her escapology skills to any great effect uh, and uh, there's a there's a hint of a romance between her and Eisenberg which is introduced uh, very very early on and just doesn't go anywhere yeah. but the interplay between them is great but I also you know the, the film is um you know, then it shifts focus to the, the FBI guy chasing him and Ruffalo's fantastic I think yeah. as, as that FBI guy and it's great to see also uh, Melanie Laurent um, Absolutely getting more. one of her best uh, Hollywood roles since Inglourious Bastards yeah. I feel like they might be planning a little bit of a sequel for this I think if this does well they, they want to do another one they've left the door open mm. do you know what I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem with that because I think we gave it three but I, I had an absolute blast with this film I think it's it's you know it's done very very well in the States uh, it's just about to hit 100 million in the States and uh, which is very very good for a, a film of virtually no stars and no brand names and whatnot. Um, and I had a blast with it Yeah, I thought these fun. were characters I could enjoy spending time with again um, and even if you can see the twist coming if you don't great more power to you but if you do see the twist coming it, I don't think it diminishes the, uh, the enjoyment of the film that much uh, but yeah three stars for that I would go personally a little bit higher but we gave it three mm, moving on Sofia Coppola is one of the most distinct voices in American independent cinema and her latest Le Bling Ring tells the true tale of a group of LA high school kids who started breaking into celebrities homes while they were away and ultimately became briefly as famous as a quarry thoughts on this one we liked it Good. Yeah. We liked it. It's a it's a story that Sophia Coppola came across in a issue of Vanity Fair based on a, an article by Nancy Jo Sales called The Suspect. The Suspects wore Le Boutin, which is um a, a lovely kind of juxtaposition that, that Coppola plays on that these characters are they're they're criminals, but they are basically just slightly very, shall we say, superficial teenagers who are worshipping at the altar of celebrity in an extraordinary way. It's got Emma Watson and Katie Chang, who's basically the ringleader, and Israel Broussard plays the, the the one guy in the gang, basically. And they use the internet to find out when celebrities are away. Paris Hilton yeah. is the first of them. She's it's away kind of in scary, Vegas. isn't it? Because they Google and, people's addresses. Yeah, exactly. You, you interviewed Emma Watson in, in Cannes, didn't you, and talked about this. It is kind of scary for celebrities because you now know where people live. 
you know, you can Google Earth their houses and you can almost sort of see their security systems. So Orlando Bloom, Paris Hilton fall victim to them. It's very voyeuristic and it takes you right into the, their lives. But they're quite empty mm. people. And spending time with them isn't always that much fun over, over you know, an hour and a half, two hours. It's actually quite a dispiriting experience. And it's not... Uh, Sophia Coppola is very, very good at showing, you know, she is now in her early 40s but she still has a real eye for this world it's the world that she kind of grew up in although obviously not this level of superficiality and um, she depicts it really well there's great cinematography from the late Harris Savides mm. this is one of his last films dedicated to him dedicated to him and uh, some great scenes there's one one long shot of a break in yeah which is beautiful against the, the LA nightscape it's my favourite shot in the film yeah it's a wonderful shot and there's lots of great moments in it she's such a great stylist I'm a little frustrated because they almost lend themselves to a Heather's like treatment a bit of a satire they they, they satirise themselves I get that but you want a bit more of a gut punch from this film I did anyway I kind of feel this film is uh, an interesting companion piece to Spring Breakers and Mm. I think this film almost has the low energy attitude of of its protagonists and which I think works very very well for mm. the movie, um, it doesn't get, it doesn't work itself up into a tizzy, but there are some great scenes in it. Yeah. I, I, and it does make you despair for, you know, that I, that generation or that that class of people, that group of people, whatever you want to call them. It, I mean, it is a it's a terrifying it look at their values and their lives. And yeah. um, I don't yeah. think she's necessarily rushing out to judge these people. No, I think she's in a weird way kind of balanced almost. Yeah. But yeah, you are. It is. It is terrifying. It's like instead of maybe you know being so obsessed with superficial and facile, why not? I don't know. Here's an idea: read a book or something. Just throwing it out there. Weirdly, they, there's actually a moment when they break into, I don't think it's shown in the film, but in real life, they broke into a reality TV star's house. So you've got a point where there's a film depicting celebrity junkies breaking into someone that was also a celebrity junkie that managed to elevate themselves yeah. to this this kind of weird new sort of pantheon that we've created in society. She doesn't need to, she doesn't need to bring an axe to grind, Sophia Coppola. Mm-hmm. It sort of does the job for you. Um, I don't think it's going to be everybody's cup of tea. We gave it no. four stars. But I think that there's a level of inertia, perhaps, mm. at times, which is a little frustrating. I watched Go, which I think is another interesting companion piece with this film. And this is like a go for the EDM generation, for the celebrity Facebook selfie generation, in a, in a sense. doesn't quite have the same sort of pep to it that Go no, had. No, yeah. and, I, and I enjoyed that about Go. This is a different beast. This is a more sort of existential slow moving piece I, I would I think it's worth saying that some of the most shocking lines in the film the ones that you think must be made up come straight from court transcripts and police interviews and you know mm. articles written at the time so watch out for those I know and one other last point that's interesting um, I met Sophia Coppola and talked about the film and I didn't realise but she actually t- toned down some of the things you see in the film these people the, Emma Watson's character for instance got a different name from the person it's based on but but she smoked Heroin in real life, and in the film really? you see her smoking smoking marijuana. So it's not as extreme as you know. It's one of those things where the reality is almost too weird to show. It's a really strange world to spend time in, and even if you know you've got some Facebook friends out there or whatever, it's still kind of alien and weird. I'd love to know. I know, I know Paris Hilton's in the film for a, a, I think a five second cameo. Yeah, uh, but I'd love to know the reaction of people like Megan Fox and Orlando Bloom. Uh, to to see in a movie about their experiences, they're not in the film. They're you know their their houses aren't, but well, 
stunt houses, I guess. But um, <laughs> I just I'd love to, to talk to them about that and see what see what they thought about the film. But yeah, I, I thought I thought this was great. It played it kind of in the uncertain regard um, category. I think it was worthy of that. So mm, definitely yeah. four stars for the bling ring. Lastly, we have the internship, which reunites the wedding crashers, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, as two middle-aged guys who begin an internship with um, oh, what's it called? Bing, uh, I think. Bing, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have to Google it. Um, with hilarious consequences. Yeah, not so much. It's ah. um, This is a film that is two hours long. Two hours. And if you had cut out 30 minutes of that two hours and made sure that most of those 30 minutes were uses of the word Google, then you might have been <laughs> on to something. Um, as it is, it's it's way too long, way too slow, uh, not nearly funny enough, and so slammed with product placement. It genuinely made me want to use Bing when I came out. Just Nobody wants of, to use Bing. I know, but, but for a moment. There was a moment. It just... So much product placement you can't even believe. Um, so, yeah, it's not great. Their shtick has become... I love them, you know, I, I love Vince Vaughn individually, love Owen Wilson individually. I felt like their shtick together just felt really tired in this. And it's funny, like you see them in interviews talking about it, and it kind of works because they're just kind of shooting Why? a breeze. But the, the, the kind of the improv here just felt, you know, tired and drawn out. There's a great onion riff on this movie which yes, called it the uh, instead, the must see movie of 2005. 2005 yes this is definitely the funniest film for anyone who's still living eight years ago and it, it does feel that way to me I mean there are references I mean the, the topical topical references to Professor X and these guys who are in their late 30s early 40s in the movie somehow don't know what the X-Men yeah. are and you just kind of go really is this written it's, by it's, yeah, it's, it doesn't it, it, it kind of an, another look at geek culture that doesn't actually understand, understand or culture. like or respect geek culture. So, it, yeah, it's it's a mess. And it's so long, so long. There are moments in it of charm. You know, there's some nice supporting characters. But overall, I, I, I didn't love it. Bit of a shame. Bit of a shame. Mm. Uh, I actually quite like the trailer this week for uh, Vince Vaughn's next movie, The Delivery Man. Yeah. Which looks like it's a slightly different variation on the Vince Vaughn persona that we've, we've come to see over the last few years. And uh, who knows? <laughs> then again, you're talking to someone who liked Fred Claus, so <laughs> maybe I'm in maybe just, I'm in the tank oh. for that man. Uh, but we shall see. Uh, other films for you to consider this week. Um, well, I don't think Ben Wheatley has the weirdest film out this week because Status Quo play themselves in a caper film called Bula Quo. We gave it two stars. That's one for Francis Rossi and one for Rick Parfit. Uh, do go and check that out if you uh, value if you're quick your sanity. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Dan Scanlon and Corey Ray, director and producer, respectively, of Monsters University, the excellent Monsters University, and the great Guillermo del Toro, who'll be here to tell us all about his Pacific Rim. Uh, until then, it, what? I thought you were being rude. Go I wasn't carry being on. rude. Okay. He's made a film called Pacific Rim. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware we of that. We're not aware of this. Okay. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to Google where Colin Salmon lives. I'm not going to break in. I'm just going to stand outside and stare. <laughs> <laughs>